friends, and welcome to this, another episode of the Underdog Football Show. My name is Josh Norris, joined by Hayden Winks. Hayden, we made it to episode three, a long conversation coming up with Matt Waldman that we just finished recording, building the board of our wide receiver position group, and I think the people out there are going to like it. You're going to learn about some some sleepers that I was not well <laughs> aware of going into it, so yeah, if you're going to... If you want to find that deep, deep sleeper, then maybe that six round guy wait till the very end. So that is building the board of the top 12 wide receivers in this draft class. Again, that's Matt Waldman of the Rookie Scouting Portfolio. Hopefully so many of you out there know his YouTube channel and obviously the RSP. If you don't, go and check it out. Uh, and I think you will want to after our conversation. But before we get there, Hayden, I would say a fairly significant NFL column came out today, Monday. And these tend to come out every single offseason maybe one to two to three where we get like a real behind the scenes look of, of an NFL team. And it's uncommon 32 NFL franchises want you to perceive them as perfect, that they do everything the exact same way and and the right way. And uh, they can do that because they can lie to us and we can just accept it. Um, But this one obviously comes from the athletic from Shil Kapadia, Bo Wolf, my buddy and, uh, and Zach Berman, big boilerplate stuff, Hayden. What were your main takeaways from this lengthy column that talked about Jeffrey Lurie, Harry Roseman, Doug Peterson, and everything that's happened over the last two years? Well, when you're winning, everything seems like the process is just perfect. And then when things start falling apart, then you really start getting the details. And when people aren't winning, then these uncomfortable conversations come up. And the, the moral of the story is just when you have ownership or a GM or their relationship and it's you don't have the trust throughout the entire building. And in this instance, it was basically the, the scouts didn't feel like they were in the room. The analytics department didn't feel like they were in the room and the owner would come in and make some picks at the very last second, or they didn't trust that the GM was actually listening to them in the first place because the, the, the chain of command was go from owner to GM and then kind of nothing uh, beneath that. So that's where you get like the JJR Sega white side pick, some of these other picks, the Jalen Hurts thing, I think it was another big point here. But I think just big picture is just when you don't have top to bottom a process, everyone is communicating within that process. And on top of that, it's just not communication. You actually see your input being valued. Yeah, That's where you can really start getting some dysfunction in an organization. I feel like a lot of people listening to this have been in situations where they don't feel like their input's being involved. And that's, that's just the absolute worst. There's a hundred layers to what you just said. And so let's, let's try to peel back some of them. First... This just, again, highlights that the NFL, despite what they try to make you think, is not so different than every single other business out there. Like, all 32 teams are run differently. They're their own private companies. But whatever career you work in, wherever you work, you can find some analogies, some similarities between what is happening in these billion-dollar organizations and then where the common people work like me. And how you're not listened to, how decisions that you thought you had input in without you even knowing what the end result was going to be or putting so much work into it and not knowing what the outcome. I think the other tier that's fascinating, Hayden, is is the ownership involvement because, you know, that, that to me, like a great owner, and sometimes you can see it and sometimes you can't, is the major differentiator in professional sports. And sometimes they are very involved. Sometimes they aren't and they understand hiring the right people and letting them do the right thing is, is the, the, the right approach. But the other part of it is, is Harry Roseman as well, who was banished to a dungeon when Chip Kelly was hired 
who was then basically brought back from the dead career-wise, professional-wise, and now seems to be the one and understands the details of relationships, the dynamics of relationships, who to be in cahoots with. And then if you're in there and if you're in the know, you're safe despite this dysfunction that was all going around it. Yeah, the the column said that Roseman was quote unquote essential to the owner here, and and when you don't have that, and you're the head coach, and one you, like someone's playing clear favorites, that is a tough situation. That's why Carson Wentz, uh, that whole situation went went backwards. That's why Doug Peterson was was out. I, it was interesting to me that Doug Peterson had a weekly meeting with ownership and the GM, and they were just like criticizing all of his in decision uh, in game decision making, third downs, fourth downs. Why aren't they passing it enough? These type of discussions that we're having on Twitter, it seems like the owner was like really in Doug Peterson's ear and Doug Peterson that really started frustrating him over time. The other last note I really wanted to bring up was there was a battle between to try to win now or to punt for the future. And it sounded like Doug Peterson, he wanted to keep his coaching staff. He thought the roster had just enough juice to make one final push. And they had some discussions going into this offseason about that. But ownership and the GM realized what had unfolded and the roster was like really starting to, to be depleted and getting really old. And they wanted to say, all right, let's hit the reset button, which they've done by trading down. And they're going to let Jalen Hurts actually run with this. That's probably the best uh, best decision they could have made because the roster was not ready to compete. But that's why you saw uh, Carson Wentz get move on. The other crazy aspect of this, though, is, I mean, they just won the Super Bowl in the 2017-2018 season. Yeah. It's not like we're talking about the, you know, the Cincinnati Bengals or or the Houston Texans here. You know, teams that have just struggled for years, especially the Texans, that you can significantly point to moves that happened in that period of time that led them to this point. We're talking about a team that just won the Super Bowl three years ago. Yeah. And, like, that's supposed to carry some weight, some respect for multiple years, and, and it absolutely hasn't. There as always with these things, there are a couple of nuggets that always stand out. You pointed out some. The J.J. Ortega-White side selection when basically the entire building thought it was going to be Paris Campbell. And also that Paris Campbell was going to be their pick over someone like D.K. Metcalf. Ortega-White side, J.J. was 57. Paris Campbell was 59. The D.K. Metcalf was 64 in that draft. So, so that absolutely stood out to me. We had Charles Robinson on the first episode of this. And he basically laid out the Jalen Hurts pick at the time and the situation at the time. And the pick was, you know, when we were all stuck at home and all the draft, the draft rooms were, were virtual for the NFL, Harry Roseman sat there and thought, well, I really want this backup quarterback. I can't wait until the third round. My team kind of thinks we're going to take him in the third round. So we're just going to take him in the second round. I don't know how, when you make a selection in the second round that you don't see how it can impact. And there's a trickle down to the rest of the team. And the three riders that I mentioned, Shiel, Bo, and Zach outlined it. We had seen before that move from the outside that Carson Wentz wasn't necessarily getting along with every single one of your teammates. And one, you're not going to ever get along with every single person you work with. That's just virtually impossible. But then it certainly read like the younger players on the team started connecting more with Jalen Hurts. And that's the direction that they went in. You made the decision that that ended up biting you if, if, if that was the case. Like It's not just everyone else's fault hey, you kind of are lying in the grave that you dug for yourself in a lot of ways. And it makes you wonder what it's like for the other 31 teams around the league too. Yeah, like you said, this was a Super Bowl winning team three years ago. So if it's happening to them, it's happening everywhere. Yeah, it's a a trust issue. Scouts don't feel like they're being trusted. Their their opinions aren't being trusted because they're not getting the players that they wanted. 
the veterans on the team thought that they were still in this win now situation. They don't have the trust because they went, they pivoted to Jalen Hurts. And the coaching staff didn't feel like they were being trusted because the GM and the owner had a very tight relationship and nobody else did. So uh, we always talk about like on, especially in the analytics community, we always kind of play this game. Like this is how you optimally do something. You have to cut this player. This is still about relationships and we can't lose sight of that. And these are human beings. Like you said, these are still going to work just because the teams are worth billions of dollars. Doesn't mean that they're that much smarter than the rest of us. It's all these relationship issues. And I think that sometimes you have to kind of step back especially the analytics community when you are always just saying cut this person do this exact thing it's it it can easily get more than that and it should be more than that after all these are humans going to work so it's not too surprising uh we can't glorify the nfl they're having the same issues that we are and a new cast member was added for those of us watching this drama alec hallaby who i'd never heard of in my life seemed to be a prominent fixture and feature and i think he has befriended jeffrey larry's son which uh, makes, a lot helps. Of, <laughs> makes a lot of sense there. I know I did. Jeffrey Lurie was a draftnik, like how he sat at home in, in LA and basically created his own draft profiles. So finally, I think the most important one is that Jalen Hurts has one season to prove he's the future of the, the Philadelphia Eagles. And that's it. He has 2021 to show I can take this team to the playoffs. And if he doesn't, this organization, how it was outlined, basically is fine to move on from him. Absolutely. And just look at the draft capital next year, depending on Carson Wentz's playing time, they'll have three first round picks. So Jalen Hurts doesn't have to play like, okay, he has to play like good because the Eagles are going to have the AMO to go up to first overall, second overall, third overall. Um, The quarterback class, we we don't know how good it's supposed to be every single year. It seems like, oh, the next class is okay. And then like all of a sudden there's five first round picks. Jalen Hurts can't just play okay. He has to play good to great this year or it's going to be reset. So I think when we're talking about Jalen Hurts and fantasy, we have to have two different discussions. In dynasty, this could be a potential sell window. I think in redraft, it's for sure a buy window because it sounds like in this column is making it. He's going to play 16 games as long as he's like playing adequate football. And I think that he's good enough to play adequate football. 17 games. We'll get there at some point, Hayden. Oh, 17 no. games. It's okay. Look, it's, it's, it's only April. We'll get there eventually, hopefully by August. Uh, all right. Once again, everyone, that column is up on The Athletic. Some great people that I know really well. Sheil, Bo, Zach, go and read it. And also, stay tuned right now for our conversation with the great, the wonderful Matt Walden. To be honest with uh, everyone out there, these conversations that you and I have on the show uh, every year, are really just for me. Like they're kind of selfish and I I record them and just allow everyone out there to listen to them, uh, put them on the RSS feed. So one, thank you for doing this. Two, congratulations on the 2021 version of the Rookie Scouting Portfolio. I'm sure we'll reference that a lot as we go along. And three, let me open with a big picture question here because in the last two years, we've had some absolutely incredible wide receivers be drafted. I mean, your AJ Browns, your, your DK Metcalf, Steve Samuel, Terry McLaurin, Justin Jefferson. I could go on and on. So simple question, maybe not a simple answer, but when you look at the big picture of this wide receiver group in this year's class, what do you see? Well, you know, it's, it's crazy because you get a little bit of everything in this particular class. And then the depth is, is amazing. And the first thing I think as an evaluator and really just as a, also a fantasy player and fantasy writer is it's going to be absolute chaos in three or four years because (laughs) there's to me there's 29 players in this class who probably have any half of them that you wanted it from 14 to to 30 
would have been major sleepers in other classes that might have cracked the top 10. And then with all these slot players, you wonder if the gadget bubble is going to burst and it's going to, they're going to over gadgetize these guys. And then that's going to be an issue. And then you have these big guys that seem to, you know, people love the Equinemia St. Brown type of player and that bubble kind of burst. But you have a lot of players who are a lot better versions of what Equinemia St. Brown was who are in this class. And, and to me, I think we're going to, this is the class where we're going to hear that guy that was drafted in the sixth round was better than everybody that was Mm. in the first 15. And I think that there's like five or six players who offer that kind of compelling potential. I think the biggest thing is just the last couple of years and the next couple of years, apparently it's just going to be filled with wide receivers. And I think that you're seeing a transition of just high school kids playing wide receiver instead of running back the last couple of years. Also so many more seven on seven type of camps and tournaments and you're just going to see more and more uh, the best athletes playing receiver. And it, it's probably more running backs and other positions, defensive players. But now your best athletes are going to play wide receiver and for good reason. And I absolutely love this position because, you know, a wide receiver is not a wide receiver is not a wide receiver, right? Like maybe the, the same label, the same contract dynamics might be similar for, for each one. Once they reach the NFL, they might be on the same scale, but how they win, how they're utilized, where they're aligned. Is so different when we look at each prospect in this year's class and, and, and the last few classes. We've seen those seven on seven, those high school camps impact wide receivers. I think we've seen it impact the quarterback evaluation and maturation process. And I think we can kind of point to this year's class that it impacts the running back class as well. And you mentioned it multiple wide receiver sets. I just counted only six of the 32 teams across the league used 11 personnel. So three wide receiver sets less than 50% of the time last season. So 26 used it at least 50% last year. And, you know, that includes the likes of the Cincinnati Bengals who were in it 76% of the time last year, Pittsburgh City, 75% of the time, uh, so on and so forth. Um, I also mentioned the rookie scouting portfolio. Hopefully everyone who listens to this or is watching it has at one point paid for the RSP because it is just an unbelievable resource. Like Matt has had some incredible calls in the past of Russell Wilson, Nick Chubb, Patch Mahomes, I could keep going on and on down the list. And here's the deal for everyone out there. If you rate and review the show, send me a little screenshot on Twitter. I will pick someone before the next show and pay for hopefully their first RSP. We'll do that. We'll do a little giveaway, Matt, since you're so kind to give us your time here. Hey man, thank you. And it's and it's my pleasure. I love doing shows with you guys. And this is gonna be a the, this should be one of the better ones that I've done over the over the course of the past week and the next two weeks. <laughs> well, we won't keep it too long because I know you have to catch up on some sleep that you've missed out in the last month. Um, how we're going to do this show and how we set it up with uh, the running back class as well in the last episode with Mike Renner, we're going to do build a board via draft style. So we'll do a snake draft um, and the details that Matt asked for, I gave him none. I gave him no specifics. So basically, the parameters are extremely generic, but your answers, your reasoning as to why this selection that you made to build our board, 1 through 12, uh, can be as specific as you want it to be. So Matt, since you are the guest, you can pick the first wide receiver on our board here. I'm going with Jamar Chase. I think he's head and shoulders above everybody in the rest of this class. And when you look at Chase, it's pretty obvious. I mean, I think a lot of people would have expected Jamar Chase to be 210, 215, the way that he played against some of these SEC corners, especially when Joe Burrow was under center and posting him up in third down situations where you're thinking, 
oh, this guy's very physical. He's got that DeAndre Hopkins kind of skill to play dirty. And I mean that down and dirty in the way of like the gray area of football where you know where the officials are and, and you're playing physical. And you have to do that in the NFL. Um, you know, I always hear high school coaches complain when I start writing about how they break the rules and how ingenious they do it. And they start telling me that's not the way I coach. And I'm going, yeah, because these your players aren't getting paid in the league. And unfortunately, the way the the way the NFL is, you have to play at the edge, and that's how it works. And he does that, but he has very clean techniques. He's also extremely quick and fast, and you can see him just pull away from cornerbacks in the open field on short passes, tracks the ball great. I, I don't know what more you want from the guy because I think people were worried about maybe you want him to be bigger, but, I mean, he plays big. And, and to me, part of that is also understanding timing. And it that means that you can avoid big hits. It means that you can, the you know, avoid hard angles to you, and to be able to make the most of the play. So I, I'm going to take him because he can play inside, he can play outside, he can play all three positions for all that matters. And and that means that I have a player with extreme flexibility of how I want to build my offense. I mean, he obviously checks every single analytics profile. Early declare he's just turning 21 years old after opting out last year. I mean, 1,700 yards, 20 touchdowns with Justin Jefferson and, and Terrace Marshall in the same offense two years ago. And he did that as a 19-year-old against SEC competition. And the last note I have on him is only 6% of his receptions came on screen. So he was beating SEC corners at the line of scrimmage, usually with physicality, but like Matt said, could also separate a little bit um, down the field as well. Awesome ball tracking skills. That I think that he's very high floor, high ceiling player. I think he'll be an ex receiver in the NFL. And I think that uh, anywhere around like pick 10 or so is fair. I'm not sure that he belongs like top five conversation just because like, I think that's kind of reserved for like your Julio Jones level prospects. And he's not quite that just because he's not as uh, physically gifted, but I mean, he can, he's going to be a number one receiver, I think pretty quickly in the league. By not physically gifted, you mean like height wise, like he's not your yeah. typical like six, three phenom. Yes. Yeah. Like okay. AJ Green, Julio Jones, like six, three plus like 220 yeah. pounds. He's just a little bit smaller than that. And I'm not sure if he's like his, his athletic testing numbers were awesome. And yeah. you can see that on tape, but like sometimes like you, you watch like a Julio Jones level prospect and it's like, okay, his athleticism is out of this world. I think Jamar Chase is just good. Can I ask a question? Would mm-hmm. you rather have Deandre Hopkins or Julio Jones? Probably peak Julio, but DeAndre Hopkins has had one hell of a career. So I'm yeah, not, a, I would take either. <laughs> it's a tough question. I, that's why I'm asking because, like, when I look at his, when I've tracked like his targets versus contact um, and from pinpoint and and from uh, general con, you know, general accuracy, which to me is accurate enough to, to, you should catch it, but the coach should criticize the quarterback for where it was placed. Um, you know, he's pretty high up there in terms of my tracking of about 10 or 11 games. Um, with him but yeah I mean to me it's like it's a great question because but I, I love the point about the Julio Jones DeAndre Hopkins we could probably go into that you know yeah. for longer than we need to <laughs> so we won't he plays within himself too like he's comfortable in chaos he's, he's comfortable in contact and you know that's one area where he wins I I'm not necessarily sure if he wins in the small game all the time Matt but he wins in the big game constantly and and to your point Hayden like where his targets were and obviously we're going back to 2019 because he opted out of the the 2020 season uh he, he had three touchdown receptions uh nine yards and shorter three touchdowns receptions in the intermediate so 10 to 19 yards and then 14 touchdowns of 20 plus yards and 20 I mean that's bananas he, yeah. he, he's obviously a big play guy 
who was working so well with Joe Burrow. And on some level, Matt, I, I do have this conversation with myself a lot. Really like the highlight reel plays that you see him are just his individual talents winning out against very highly rated and recruited corners in the SEC and just winning those contested catches and just making them look like the inferior or, or, or smaller players. Does not It's not a concern or, or worry you, but will it take a quarterback who is willing to throw to him and, and allow him to win and trust him to win in those situations for him to get to the ceiling of the production that that we can hope for out of him? I mean, he's going to be successful anywhere, but I mean, just to reach the absolute max. I don't think so. I, yeah. I, I, you know, I wondered that as well, but the more I watched him, the more I realized is that it was the type of coverage that he faced, whether it was off coverage and then the man played tight on him once he got at the top of his stem or whether it was two or three corners in a, in a, in a conference that you're, that most receivers wouldn't see back to back to back. Um, and then the best in the ACC or the best in the big 10. And as a result of that, I think that it got people worried that maybe he can't separate against, you know, certain guys. But when you, when you watch, when you look at what he did, you know, that's where I think the metrics come into play so often is that, you, you, the metrics can give you an understanding of the potential of what he's able to do when the coverage is is right. And and to me, you know, when you look at his forty time, you look at his twenty shuttle, and, and see the the burst and excel the acceleration and the long speed. There's no question. So I'm I'm happy with that. And then to me, if anything, you can go backwards from there and say, oh well, that's great because that means if he's able to work free and get in position against top corners, then yeah, he. He may need a Matt Ryan for him to be the Roddy White, the next Roddy White of the NFL, where you could have two guys plastered on him on third and 17 and still make the throw, and he's going to catch the comeback like nobody was even there on him. Um, and maybe there's not a lot of quarterbacks that would do that. Um, but at the same time, there's enough quarterbacks that you know, you're going to have talents comparable to Marshall and to Justin Jefferson, where he's going to run free a lot too. He just happened to get to do that at LSU where he had optimal looks. And sometimes those looks, I would say if they needed to target him more inside, target him tight or, or down below, they probably could have done that as well. But it was a pick your poison situation with those three guys, Clyde Edwards, Hilaire and Thaddeus Moss. I went back and watched a video in his training last night. And I think he's been training since November or December because obviously he missed the 2020 season, opted out. And his his trainer said at one point he got all the way up to 212. And they're like, okay, we got to scale you back a little bit because you're still growing. You're still maturing. We don't want you to get 12 pounds heavier than your playing weight was in 2019. So I think he settled around 207 pounds, something like that. But to your point, like he's still maturing. He's still growing, like he's still developing in, in those areas. And, and I think that's a part of like the larger conversation when we talk about breakout age or uh, the age of a player when they're going into the draft is, okay, they still have the mental and physical development that's still ahead of them that we can kind of count on. And I think that's absolutely the case here uh, with Jamar Chase. All right, number two, my turn. Uh, I love players who break the mold, Hayden Winks. I love it. There's nothing I like more than seeing your Russell Wilson's I guess even before then, maybe your Drew Brees is even like Darren Sproles when he's in the league, even if he's not the best player at his position, he breaks the mold. And there's a receiver in this class that can do that. And it's mainly because of his weight, roughly 170 pounds. Uh, and that's Devontae Smith out of Alabama. What is so amazing to me about Devontae Smith is that he plays so much bigger. 
He plays longer. He plays taller in those catch point situations and those contested situations in the end zone, in the red zone, along the sideline. He extends his body incredibly well. And then there are other times where he uses his frame and his size to his advantage. I tweeted out some clips recently of when he matched up against JC Horn in 2019 against South Carolina. And that was a class, a group that was loaded with Henry Ruggs and, and Jerry Judy. And there's JC Horn, a first round cornerback in this class, following him into the slot on third and 11. And then you see times when he bends and dips and creates separation against press coverage, which apparently he's not supposed to do at 170 pounds. And he just does it so well. His releases are fantastic. And then he gets after it too. I mean, he has a physical nature to his game and obviously he's so fluid. So while we haven't seen someone or many people necessarily Hayden at this weight turn into complete superstars, I think Devonte Smith is the outlier at the position. Yeah. I mean, all those underrated or undersized prospects that come out and that are viewed as bust. I mean, they weren't playing in the SEC and they didn't have the length that Devonta Smith has. And I, I just want to be betting on somebody that Nick Saban has talked super highly of and just has a great feel of the game. And like you said, Josh, there was a couple plays where even like in the end zone, jumping up, he's getting kind of pushed out of bounds. He would come down, snag the ball. He just seems so mature for the position. I listened to a couple of his interviews. He's a very smart man as well. So uh, he's coming in in the 99th percentile in my models. Obviously, his production is through the roof. Um, 34.4 PPR points per game. That's the most of any FBS drafted receiver in my database last year. Obviously, won the Heisman. So um, I think I'm going to be betting on him as an outlier. Matt, I'm very curious what you have to say about him, though. Well, I mean, I like him for sure. I mean, I think that he's a everything that you guys have said about him is a very positive part of his game that I also noticed. Um, the thing that the common criticism with him with his weight is that he can get pinned to the boundary. I've heard that. I heard Greg Cosell say that at one point. And I thought, well, that's true. But also, I've seen big wide receivers get pinned to the boundary on a regular basis, too. <laughs> Jonathan Adams gets pinned to the boundary. Um, and he's a pretty big dude who can run. The issue is, is he just has to learn the technique of how to sell the route inside and then work back outside, which is what good pro receivers do once they learn how to become pros. So I think he'll work at his game and do that. And I've seen him against some Michigan cornerbacks. And I know people think big 10 equals slow, but that's not always the case. And, and being able to see a guy play physical and patient with him, and he was able to find solutions using his hands. Well, um, but the bigger issue to me is patience. There aren't a lot of patient cornerbacks in college football, even if they're good cornerbacks, they're athletic, but they're not patient. I remember Xavier Rhodes, who was a heck of a, a you know, cornerback at Florida State, wasn't always patient. You know, that wasn't his deal. But in the NFL, that's where the issue is going to come for him is that he has to kind of figure out how to deal with patient corners who can be also physical with him. But the opportunity, the opportunities that he has to play in the slot, play outside, um, I liken him to Emmanuel Sanders. And I think that if that's his, if that could be his floor, that's pretty darn good, you know? And then to me, his ceiling, obviously, you know, there's people who give Marvin Harrison comps and, and I'm not sure I'm like ready to go there, but certainly he is, he's a guy that if, you know, people worry about wide receivers of that size last in the league, but from some of the, just adding up over the past 16 years, how many receivers were, fantasy worthy and say as a wide receiver three top 36 say um 
how many were top 24, how many were top 12. Deshaun Jackson is one of the leaders in that. Um, even though we think about him as getting hurt all the time, he's actually had a, a lot of seasons and that where he's been able to do that. And I know that a couple have been cut short <laughs> and he was still really high up there. So you kind of have to keep that in mind. But when you look at when you look at Devonta Smith, I think that he can give you kind of a mix between what Deshaun Jackson offers and what Emmanuel Sanders offers. And and I don't think that's anything to sneeze at. Yeah, I would go as to far as to say that like there are moments when there are few wide receivers, if any, in this class play bigger and more physical to Devontae Smith. And I'm not saying it's like throughout an entire series of a route or a series of a play, but just certain aspects and certain moments of his game. He just, he, he, he plays big. Like part of this also Hayden is that we don't have an athletic profile on Devontae Smith. And like, sure. We might hedge ourselves and in, in that area, at least compared to some great wide receivers in this class that when we just talked about Jamar chase, we'll talk about Sean Bateman and Terrace Marshall and, and so on and so forth. And so not having that profile, that, that that's a part of the evaluation, especially comparing him to some of the names I talked about at, at the top of this conversation. But I, he's just an absolute joy to talk with. And I agree with you, Matt, that like the floor, if the floor is Emmanuel Sanders and you draft him in the top 10, yeah, there will be some disappointment there. Like it's probably going to be somewhat like, you know, the Titans disappointment in taking Corey Davis as a top 10 wide receiver. And I certainly think Devontae Smith can be more productive than Corey Davis was until his final contract here. But the point is he's going to be productive no matter what. He's going to be an element of your passing game no matter what. The question is if he's just, you know, that peak performer at the position that kind of transcends his team every single time. Yeah, and in the NFL, you can hide him a little bit, put him in the slot, maybe in year one, uh, especially if the Dolphins take him. I think he can be a great slot receiver uh, year one and just let him develop and like like you said, learn against patient corners. And I think that's one of the last things that he has to do. And just talk about the athletic profile. He just didn't want to weigh in. I'm guessing that's why he didn't want to run the 40 and all that stuff. When I watch him on, on tape, he, he creates some decent separation. He's like a long strider, but he like really picks up some yards down the field too. So I wouldn't be too uh, concerned about his athletic profile. Matt, did you love his releases as much as I did? You're kind of quiet on that topic when I brought it up, and that's not <laughs> typically like you. Yeah, I mean, I think he's very comfortable in that area. I just think that, um, you know, he has a lot of nice techniques. I mean, you can certainly see the variety of steps that he uses to work inside, outside. It's just that I didn't want to go into too much detail with it because at the end of the day, it comes down to what he's going to do against patient physical corners. So like yeah. he has all the technique that you're looking for. Um, it's just a matter of, it's just a matter of whether he can execute it against the guys that matter, that make him a top guy where I would argue, you know, since I'm not a Broncos fan that John Elway and company just didn't use Emmanuel Sanders. Right. So, you know, he could have been a much better player, but that's just my job at, at, as a fan. Hayden Winks getting back on topic. Who's the third wide receiver on our board? I'm going to go with Jalen Waddle. I think that he's being viewed as a top 10 pick. And like it seems like there's like a, a teardrop. I'm not sure how big the, the teardrop is between Jalen Waddle and the next guys. But I see somebody that wins in the slot, obviously, with speed. I see somebody that's a little more physical than your classic like 180-pound receiver. There was a play against Missouri where he went up and high-pointed this ball in traffic. There's a couple of plays where he's winning in traffic on jump ball situations on top of that. And he's been doing this for like a couple of seasons now against some really good corners and just talking about one slant and it's 80 yard touchdown. That's obviously Jalen Waddle. 
I hate comping anyone to Tyreek Hill because Tyreek Hill is just, he's become such a master at like everything. And Jalen Waddle has, has a way to go. But if there is somebody that is twitched up enough, I think it's going to be Jalen Waddle. I love Jalen Waddle. I think he's the ultimate weapon in this class. And the only player that I would take ahead of him is Jamar Chase. And I had him a comfortable tier above everybody else, just below Chase, you know? So there was Chase, Waddle, and then everybody else. And I'm not usually one to go for just the gadget speed guys. And I really don't think he is just a gadget speed guy. I think this is a clutch football player. who played Like what Hayden just mentioned, I remember against Auburn, he's going up and winning balls like that. In his freshman year against Georgia, he's making plays, the penultimate play that set up the game-winning pass in the national championship game was a play to the sideline that Jalen Waddle caught between two players and somehow got his foot in, down in bounds. And he runs routes at that top speed in a way that's scary. I mean, he has terrific control of his feet. I think he's going to be able to defeat press. And the fact that he's 180, I, I mean, I remember a player at 180 who just kind of took over the league at one point. Um, and it was a team that you did a little work for, Josh. And, <laughs> and so that player's name is Isaac Bruce. And I think there's some Isaac Bruce to this guy's game um, because of the the toughness in in which he plays, the routes that he can run, how smooth and fast he is. I mean, certainly we could look at that tight end slash, you know, wide receiver, pass catcher, whatever you want to call him in Florida um, as as a potential weapon you might take above these other two, you know, receivers. But Waddle is, I I would be thrilled to have him. Yeah, unfortunately I missed the... uh... Tory Holt, Isaac Bruce days of the Rams and instead got the uh, Danny Amendola days of the Rams. So that wasn't uh, my benefit, Matt. But I'm, I'm totally with you. Jalen Waddle just moves differently than everyone else. It, it is that simple. And I, I catch myself at times, and especially watching such an athletic position like wide receiver, and just being in awe of like how aesthetically pleasing some of the movement is with some of these players. And you can see, like, because I go through the positions each at a time, and so I'm like going through some and then it just sticks out how comfortable he is in his own movements, how controlled it is. But at the same time, how explosive it is. And we're going to talk about some really fast wide receivers in this group, some ones with great straight line speed, some that make people miss. But no one combines it all and makes it look so fluid and in control more than more than Jalen Waddle. And what I love about him and what he immediately offers you at the very least is you Put him in the slot, ask him to run crossing routes or, or anything over the middle or any pattern that's one to nine yards, and he can be dynamic after the catch. But at the exact same time, he offers you plenty of vertical route ability from that same slot position. So that puts that cornerback, that safety, whoever, in an absolute bind immediately and will be terrified every single Sunday when lining up opposite Jalen Wall because it, he has to either have to sell out to stop the yards after the catch immediately or be witness to a vertical route that's immediately over your head. And he was doing that constantly, I saw, at Alabama Hayden. Yeah, I, I totally get it. Matt, I'm just curious. Do you have a difference between Waddle and Ruggs? Obviously, everyone's scared of a very similar profile with Henry Ruggs last year. And they're going to be drafted about the same range. Could you talk people off the ledge with Henry Ruggs? Sure. I would. I would tell people that – First of all, maybe we should just begin with that Henry Ruggs was used mainly as a deep threat during a COVID um, altered season in 
you know, Las Vegas, where basically you're asking him to, you know, get some level of rapport in the vertical game with a quarterback who's also working with another rookie receiver and his best options were basically on the inside. And then they realized that the guy they slated for the inside, they wanted to put on the outside, which was a semi sure handed at best receiver coming over from Philadelphia. So there was a lot of change going on. And I think that people kind of look at rugs and they're they, again, they play dynasty like it's redraft and they think that this guy's a bum and it, that we haven't even seen enough proof yet. And I've seen him go up and make some really nice plays when Carr got the ball within range for him to, to be able to win it. So there's that. And then second of all, you know, rugs is rugs is a fast guy who can develop as a route runner, but he, I had written in the RSP last year that he needed real work in and out of his breaks. Like his timing routes weren't there. And what really makes a great receiver isn't what he can do in the short game to beat people, you know, after the catch or what he can do in the deep game running past people and winning the ball. It's what he can do in the intermediate game that forces defenders to consider that bind. Because if you can't run routes in the middle of the field and those, the, those intermediate timing routes, even if it's just to the outside, you have to be unbelievably special like DK Metcalf where the defensive where people worried about his ability to bend but what you notice is that one is that if they play him tight his hands are so quick and violent that and heavy that they'll just knock the guy on his butt and so as a result of that they can't play too tight cuz he'll run by him and then they have to play way off him so that even if he bends like I do at 51 years old, you know, he still can get open because they have to respect his deep speed. So I think that for, you know, Metcalf's that outlier, whereas when you look at a guy like Ruggs, he can't do that just yet. Waddle can. Waddle can do everything. The way you talked about him being able to move, Josh, that's something that I think everyone who's just like interested in watching football if you see a player that you're sitting here thinking aesthetically, this guy's like art the way that he moves, you might start looking at other special players who've come out of football, you know, played football, and and you're going to start comparing them to those guys. That's why, to me, for a long time, Waddle was my top receiver. It, yep. it just it just didn't turn out that uh that I had to watch more tape tape of Chase, and and that that did it. Let's take a pause here for a moment because these are the consensus top three. Like these are how a lot of people view this wide receiver position. You rank them one to three in some way. Hayden, how is a team going to make this decision? How can you decipher, discern which one of these three you're going to take first of the trio? Short-term team needs. If if you're the Bengals, for example, you already have Tyler Boyd. I probably wouldn't go Jalen Waddle. I'd probably go Jamar Chase. I I think for the the Lions is the most interesting team to talk about that where these teams are going to go or these uh, receivers are going to go because they don't have any receivers at any of the spots. Uh, So I think I would go Chase in those situations. I just ultimately think that we have a slot type, we have a flanker type, we have an X receiver type, and if you're going to be breaking ties, I think that's how you'd have to do it in like short-term team needs. Matt, is that fair? Yeah, I think it's a very fair way of looking at it. Just to offer an alternative, it would be that you could say, who's the guy who's most likely to give me the flexibility to play him at multiple spots based on what we're doing? And that means that maybe he gives us more versatility for a second contract. I like it. By the way, uh, shocking, Hayden, that it took us until episode three to talk about Henry Ruggs. Uh, I'm sure all the listeners will be hearing a lot more from us about Henry Ruggs this summer 
Matt, just a little inside here, uh, how Henry Ruggs was used in the first two weeks, uh, excuse me, two quarters of the NFL season <laughs> was amazing. It's exactly how he wanted it to happen. And then somehow John Gruden and company forgot their own evaluation of him after that. So we want more manufactured touches. We want more easy touches. We want more closer to the line of scrimmage plays for Henry Ruggs because then that's where he can be an absolute dynamite player for the Raiders. And I'm just shocked that it changed from those first two quarters to the rest of the season. Thought this was a good moment to quickly tell you about something exciting over at Underdog Fantasy. If you've ever played any other best ball, you know about private drafts. I love them. I'm sure a lot of you have played private drafts with me before. Well, today we launched our own and it's super easy to get there. If you're on desktop, just go to whatever sport, scroll down to any tier of the best ball. If it's $3 or $5 or $10, and click that little I with a circle around it. Then you'll see it right under enter. It'll say create private draft. And that's it. Just create it. It gives you a link right there and share it with all your friends. Send it to the group chat, some college buddies you haven't talked to in forever, family members, whatever. Just go and check out private drafts now over on Underdog. And when you sign up, be sure to use promo code Josh Norris. Again, very easy on the desktop or on the app to create those private drafts. Let's now go. We're going to snake this one. We didn't snake it last time. We'll snake it this time. So our first three, as we alluded to, Jamar Chase, Devontae Smith, Jalen Waddle, Hayden Winks, who's number four. This is the person that is actually ranked ahead of Jalen Waddle in my model, and it's Elijah Moore. He's a 94th percentile uh, prospect in my model, 99th percentile adjusted production. He had 32.5 PPR points per game in the SEC last year. He's a 90th percentile adjusted spark athlete, 4-3-5-40, three cone, and a 36-inch vert. What I noticed with him, he's also 21 years old and an early declare. So like the athletic profile, the production profile, all those things are awesome. They also just schemed him touches all the time. It was very clear that Lane Kiffin viewed him as the best athlete, the best playmaker on the field, and I want to be betting on those type of players as much as possible. Um, he's been a slot receiver uh, in college. Um, I'm not sure if he can is going to be an outside receiver. I think it's going to take some development. But if you're, if I'm going to get a like top five, top ten slot receiver, I'm totally fine with that. In today's NFL, like Josh was mentioning, everyone's using three receiver sets now. So a slot receiver is a full time player. And I think that if you were going to use 12, 12 personnel, I think Elijah Moore can definitely stay on the field in those situations as well. So I think that I'm going to be ranking slot receivers now a little bit higher than I usually would just because every single team basically is using them on more than half of their passing play. So um, I wouldn't be scared even if he didn't develop as an outside receiver, but I think there's even a chance that he does. Matt, is it the biggest question that can he play on the outside or is that not even necessary? Like I, I think I, I did the math. He played in the slot 89 and a half percent of his snaps. And then what I've noticed just looking at college football is most of these programs, because they want to win, because they want to put points in the board, are putting their best wide receivers in the slot. And it's more manufactured space. It can be the primary read in RPOs. And so that's why we see all different shapes and sizes playing the slot now, where we used to just see the short, quick guys playing the slot. I mean, sure, Elijah Moore is 5'10", 178 pounds, so he might fit in the latter rather than the former. But the point stands where I would have loved to see him, you know, 40 to 60% on the outside in college. And he, I think he still might be able to do that in the NFL. Very possible. And I mean, I think that he'll certainly have some reps 
as an outside receiver. I don't think there's anything, any doubt to that. Now, what I personally do, I personally think he's going to be a outside receiver, mainly not a chance. I don't believe it at all. Um, yeah. I mean, I, and I think Lane Kiffin's comment that he's the next Steve Smith is basically advertising to get recruits um, because if he can get this guy drafted early, it's going to be, I'm, you know, that's, you know, it, it will entice people who may not be doing their due diligence to maybe value him a little bit higher than maybe he should be. But that said, I love Elijah Moore as a player, and I agree with Hayden that, you know, the thing that I think where he's going to have dual usage is out of the backfield or on the wing as kind of a red zone specialist where I see him as kind of a faster Javaris Landry. can't even remember Landry's name. And he's Jarvis Landry. He's Jarvis that. Landry, yeah. He's someone that he makes such nice plays in tight quarters, especially against – uh, linebackers who try and play him a little bit tight. He knows how to use the lean-to to be able to work open. He has skill to find those open zones and work back to the quarterback. He can win those high-point plays. He, you know, I don't think he's the most dynamic runner, but he's absolutely, you know, you the athletic profile you see. He's certainly quick enough. He certainly can break free of people. Um, he's just, to me, it's like I put Danny Woodhead as a part of a comparison profile. Uh, mainly because of the way they used him, not because of the fact that he could be the runner that Woodhead is, but he's going to get yards on draws. So if I were a team that was drafting him, I'd be thinking, not only am I going to use him in the slot, but he's going to be the ultimate red zone weapon because I'm going to move him all over the place and I'm going to create a lot of confusion and a lot of easy looks because teams are overly concerned about what Elijah Moore does. So maybe some like Curtis Samuel there too, like in terms yeah. of getting some backfield usage and some slot usage and even some outside usage. I We've talked about Curtis Samuel a lot, and I think he's more than like this gadget player that he gets labeled as, but that's neither. I wore my right Panthers there. hat today just for you, John. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you and I have some of the very similar notes in Elijah Moore here. Like I wrote down tough receptions. Like he made a lot of difficult receptions. And then immediately, despite that contact, he can pull away after the catch. And then one aspect of his game was that on those broken plays that seemed to be, you know, more accentuated than ever in the NFL now, he always seemed to be the player that got open for his quarterback. Like he always seemed to be the one that found that open areas worked back and was just aware in those moments of, of chaos. And I don't know if that's a skill. I don't know if that's a trait, but I think maybe the game slows down for him there versus not with other prospects and other players he was playing against. So, so that definitely, uh, that definitely stood out to me. Only played 38 snaps versus press all season last year. Um, so it's just something to think about. Just something to think about. Um, all right. I guess I'm next. We're here at the fifth wide receiver and I'm going to break the system. I hate to do this to everyone because he's not necessarily the next wide receiver, on my board that's available. But I just want to talk about him. And it's Terrace Marshall. Uh, Terrace Marshall to me, is someone whose best football is ahead of him, despite him being, I thought, a great prospect in 2020. Um, he Right now, he's an outstanding athlete that was winning with athleticism and doesn't necessarily have the nuance or like the aesthetic capabilities of like, I'm going to bob my head here, twist my shoulders here to create the sliver of separation and then sustain it. He was winning a lot on contested catches in close quarters. 
Um, and then just in on, on tough catches out of the slot as well. But I've seen this before and I've seen this before succeed. Like I saw some of like the Cortland Sutton to his game ones that you're like, oh, I don't know how this is working, but it's repeatedly working over and over and over again, Matt. And I've been, you can ask Hayden, I've been very curious and I never read your stuff before we talk or listen to your stuff before we talk. So I'm very curious of your thoughts of Terrace Marshall, who turns 21 in June. And so what he's already done, I think works, and that his game can continue to develop from here. Well, this is the second conversation I've had about Terrace Marshall today. And ironically, they both came after I put out a Terrace Marshall video um, (laughs) (laughs) on my site that was about 10 minutes long, talking about the details, winning details of his game. Um, And I know that like how you described him, I was going to say, I kind of, I disagree maybe a little bit with the, with the detail oriented part of his game, because certainly he may not be a master route technician, but the full, he understands how to use his feet and use different route techniques. And I don't always see top receivers even use like quick three footwork techniques to work inside Um, the ability. And then things with his hands, like there's so many receivers that they're great athletes, but they don't know how to attack with their hands first or be able to extend and and come back to the ball and win the ball in that fashion. He's a tough player. I watched him against Auburn and I remember Auburn just nailing him on a play and he dropped the ball and he didn't let it get in his head. Like he, they, they played physical against him all game and that was the only ball he dropped. And he's, he's very good with the catch and pierce technique, which is the ability to get downhill as soon as he catches the ball. And he has a skill to do, and people might say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, go watch your favorite athletic receiver. And there's probably a good chance that when they come into the NFL, when they catch the ball, they're going to square up the defender and try and make a move. And they just wasted space and time and they get tackled or they end up having to retreat and they end up a, a play where they could have gained seven. They lost four because they were trying to get 30, you know? And when you look at a player like Marshall, I watched him against South Carolina and he got three defenders flowing on a crossing route and just immediately planted his foot instead of continuing along with the break. He just immediately planted his foot and turned downhill. And he scored from about, I think he gained another 45, 50 yards on that play and outran the safety, a corner and a linebacker who should have, who thought they were just flowing with the direction of the break because he understood the technique. And, and I see him frame separation well, tight outside coverage where he shows the nuance I just saw against the Mississippi State corner was where there was a go route up the left rail and he literally turns and looks back for the ball at the 15-yard line, gets the defender to turn, and then just works past him and then uses his hands perfectly to just frame that separation to keep that bubble of distance away from the defender. The defender grabs his arm, and he makes the play one-handed over the shoulder, drags the feet inbounds while he's wrapped up. I mean, he has mistakes. There's some things with boundary stuff that you want to see, but I have him as if A.J. Green's, you know, A.J. Green's at the top, Say it. And Corey Davis is at the bottom. He's in the middle of that, you know? So he's not the AJ Green starter kit that Preston Williams was that I've joked around with, but he's kind of more maybe the intermediate model where, you know, the the middle, the middle school students get to use a little bit of glue and, you know, and it it looks a little sharper and they get to play with the paint set a little bit more, you, you know, so that you might not be able to hide the lines a little bit. I think that this guy could be, and inside and outside, like all the, LSU receivers, which he may be the worst of the three. 
<laughs> and even if he's the worst of the three, I think he's going to be a starter in the league and a guy with a shot to be a you know, 900-yard, 1,100-yard producer you know, for maybe some consecutive seasons if he can stay healthy with the right quarterback. There was just a couple plays like on curl routes, a couple slants, a couple of these blocking clips where he just seems maybe disinterested. I don't know if it was just last year LSU kind of just fell off and he was just ready to go to the league. Uh, <laughs> right. And I, I wouldn't blame him for, for that too much. I think I'd probably be too lenient of a, of, of a scout. Uh, but yeah, at the same time, you just see it. And he's like Josh said, he's only going to be 20 years old on draft night. So even with these little critiques, he's a plus athlete, went to LSU. He had a lot of production last uh, last season as well. He comes in an 88th percentile uh, prospect in my model. I'm a little confused with him. I want to like, like him more than I do. Um, but I think ultimately his overall profile is good. And you kind of just have to throw away these little nuanced things. I wish he was a little bit more tactical with at the same time. When you're that young, you can have to be able to project a little bit and he's just going to be an early declare. I think he'll be a, he'll probably be a better pro than college player. 73% of his snaps were uh, in the slot last year. And Matt, I absolutely love it when at least one of the names on like the player comparison spectrum we wrote down were the same. And Corey Davis was the bottom end of mine as well. Uh, so nice. that's, I just, I absolutely love that. All right. You just made me feel a lot better, but my Terrace Marshall love. Um, all right, Matt, you're up with pick six and seven, but give us the first one first. Good, because I'm going to get to break some things open right now, too. Now, um, and these are two players I've definitely liked talking about. Um, one of them is Rashad Bateman. I'm a Rashad Bateman fan. And, and to me, last year, you have to understand, I, it's amazing to me because when I mentioned this, I've had multiple people just kind of like gasp or sigh or like make some sort of audible reaction because they didn't know that he had COVID and that he had COVID in the summer and a rough case of it. He had a difficult time getting over it and he lost a good bit of weight. Now, I don't know how much weight he lost. He was listed at 210, probably never played at 210, but he was 190 apparently, you know, while he was playing and he probably shouldn't have played. He came back to play and he played in a system where they used a lot of horizontal stretches rather than using him as the vertical guy and the vertical monster that he was you know, the year before. And he has a pretty good deep threat receiver outside who's going to be a prospect for at Minnesota. I don't remember the kid's name. I just remember the number because I haven't scouted him closely enough. Number seven, I think, at Minnesota, who I think is probably going to end up being a prospect. So I don't, I don't want to hear the Tyler Johnson made him <laughs> better type of thing. If anything, he made Tyler Johnson better. Um, and when you look at you look at what Bateman does well, you have to understand that this is someone that Clemson got shut down by Georgia Southern's um, cover corners in a game, like early in a game. Um, Mar uh, was his name? Marquavius Brown, I think, is the, and then Kendall Vildor got drafted by the Bears. Mm -hmm. These guys shut down Mike Williams. They shut down Justin Ross. They shut down, um, you know, Amari Rogers. They shut down multiple Clemson players in that game. Picked off, um, you, you know, picked off Lawrence one in the red zone, just completely dominated them in the early parts of this game until it got out of hand. And I'm watching Rashad Bateman win against these guys, win in the middle of the field. He has a knack for being able to catch the ball with a defender bearing down on him, either whether it's a safety or a linebacker, and then forget about his catch radius when he's split out wide. He has some uh, excellent tracking. Even last year, playing at like a fraction of his weight, apparently, he was still tracking the ball unbelievably well. And when he's healthy, the way he runs, I'm going to give you three names, and they're not like 
he's not these guys, but he can get within the neighborhood. He's got the ability to play inside, outside, like Michael Thomas. Um, I don't think he's as physical as Michael Thomas, but he certainly holds up to physical play and not disturbed by it. So there's some Keenan Allen-like things to his game in terms of what I see. You know, his releases he needs to work on a little bit. He has his he he has a really awkward stance that's going to be a little bit of a tell for defenders, but he can fix that. Um, but Keenan Allen is a little bit of that. And then he runs in the open field a little bit like Cordero Patterson. I mean, like the way that he is efficient, but also dynamic and he can take some hits and keep going and maintain that balance. I love his game. I have him ranked third overall. Um, So I, you know, I just ignored, I ignored 2019 uh, or 2020 pretty much. I mean, I watched the games and I graded him and, but really, I didn't take that away and say, well, what I saw in 2019 is now Nolan Void. I mean, it's just more of a adds color to the spectrum. But then again, I kind of ignored bad Mike Davis and kept good Mike Davis. But because of his draft capital, now he's finally getting the chance to be a starter, at least until they draft another running back probably um, in May. <laughs> so. he To me, he's like the anti-Terrace Marshall where he's not as like – as physically gifted as Terrace Marshall, but I see a lot more nuance. I saw way better slants, and both of both of those players are really lengthy, can really pluck the ball out of the air. But just Rashad Bateman, he just seems like he's just more advanced, and that's not a surprise. We should be expecting this for all of the Minnesota receivers, including Tyler Johnson, whoever Matt's talking about coming up next year. Minnesota is just going to be the receiver factory of just understanding how to win at the position just because of P.J. Fleck. Like the other guys, only 21 years old, 97th percentile adjusted production, and then just good enough athleticism. I was not expecting 43940. Um, maybe when he adds a couple couple more pounds, he's gonna be a little bit slower. But that's fine with me. I see him as an X receiver. I'm giving him a first round grade. Um, I'm kind of keep seeing reports that he's gonna be a second round guy instead of a round one guy. I would happily take him like in around pick 20 or so. Hmm. I actually thought some of his best routes, Matt, and some of his best snaps weren't even when he was targeted. Like when you look at like the big picture, like the the all 22 angle, um, that's when I really got to see the more nuances of his game, like at the top of his routes to create that separation. Because then on the TV angle, you see it and he's like, oh, he's an open receiver. Now he catches the ball and now he breaks a tackle. Well, the the really refining moments, the refinement to his game are, are the top of his routes or in the first two or three steps of it. And uh, that's where he shines like that. That's where to me right now is some of the best elements of his game. And while I didn't see, and we're going to talk about some of these names in a moment, ones who are just, you know, jitterbugs out there in terms of making people look silly when trying to tackle them. I mean, you look at the numbers and Rashad Bateman had 36 broken tackles on 147 career catches. That's a fantastic number. And I'm, I'm with you. Now, Matt, the question is this. Like, we talked about some players above him who either play in the slot or might be best in the slot in the NFL. Is it fair to say that Rashad Bateman might be the next best X receiver on this list other than Jamar Chase? He could be, especially when he adds that weight back. And and I would even say, Hayden, it's very possible he could add some quick t- twitch muscle to his frame and get a little quicker. Um, so there's a possibility there. And I'll just add this one last point, Josh, that you just mentioned and kind of color it in a little bit more about the intelligence of his game or the details. 
I saw a route um, in, I believe it was in 2020, where he ran an out route, but at the top of the break, he noticed that the that the defensive back playing in zone, the shallow zone, climbed into the break space that, and he had he had beaten the trail coverage that was like on top of him, and he saw that basically that the quarterback didn't see the dropping defender. He adjusted his break and worked back to the ball to undercut the defender late in the play to make the reception. And it's just just like I talked about how he can make that one step in the middle of the field on dig routes and avoid a defender. It's not just the concentration. It's the fact that he's seen the field well enough at that last split second where, you know, you think about quarterbacks. There's quarterbacks who understand everything about the field but then they throw to a blind spot because they know the receiver is supposed to be there, but they didn't check that, that last moment to really, and they couldn't really see it clearly. He sees the field clearly. And the fact that he does that, I think the techniques and whatever he has to add and grow is only going to make him a better player. He's, he's probably one of my favorite receivers in this class. Yeah. And on the coronavirus top, like I, I have not had it. You know, but we have seen so many athletes who are like the one percent of the one percent, right? Um, it impacts them so differently. You know, some get over it within a week, some a few days. Uh, then I even see, you know, Premier Locks, Premier League soccer players miss months. We've talked about Miles Garrett. We've talked about so many players throughout the league that it hits them differently. So in this case, I mean, dropping down 10, 15 pounds. I mean, imagine then trying to recover from that in a matter of, of weeks while still playing football. That's just absurd. Yeah. It's it's absurd. It's an added layer onto this that none of us know other than him. Right. And so that that's, that's what makes it all difficult. Um, All right, Matt, you have another one. Go ahead. Yeah. And this is going to be my fun one for me because I like Tylen Wallace out of Oklahoma state. And I know that there are a lot of people who may find that surprising. Last year was not a great season for him kind of playing with a brace on after the ACL tear. Um, But before that injury, at least from some of the data I saw, he might've been the third fastest receiver in this class before that. And he's a contested catch player, six feet, 185. He plays tough. I think he's a better route runner than what we saw of his, of his former compatriot, James Washington. Um, I think he can offer more than what Washington did. And his teammates and coach said he's a better ball tracker than Washington. And that's the one thing about Washington's game that really stands out, you know, for the Pittsburgh Steelers right now is if he can learn how to run routes, he'd be amazing. And I think Dylan Wallace can can run those routes. He reminds me at worst of a Deontay Johnson. I think he can be a Stefan Diggs type of player um, in this league as time goes on because he has to, you know, there's some things he's going to have to continue to work on. But the fact that he came back from the ACL um, and he, it took him a while to regain that speed. So his production probably, I don't know, probably wasn't all that great last year. Um, and he probably didn't look as fast. Um, but he, his pro day certainly showed that it was coming back and he was getting confidence in the leg. And it's usually the speed isn't there because the confidence isn't there. And I think, you know, more times than not. But I'll say this. He gets hurt the the week before the bowl or the the game before this bowl game, the same knee that he tore the ACL in, and he strapped it up and played. Now, whether that's smart or not, wise or not, is certainly up for debate. I probably would have told him not to play, um, 
But the fact that he did tells you how much this guy cares about playing football and how he wants to win, how he wants to be a part of a team environment and wants to compete. In the same way that Jalen Waddle had no business playing in that bowl game. I mean, even less yeah. business than, than Tylen Wallace did. I mean, but that's Jerry Rice had no business playing on that Monday night game way back in the day when he came back from that ACL tear that he suffered at the hands of Warren Sapp earlier that season, though. My fantasy team, when I had him as my first pick, was like kind of hoping for the for otherwise way back in that time. But that, that's another story. But Wallace to me is tough. He's a good he's a good blocker. He'll work across the field to to make those plays, tight coverage. And I think if anything, because of it's Oklahoma State's offense, you're going to see a player who only gets better as a route runner, and the skills are there. He can make the hard breaks. He can make those types of plays at right depth. I think we're just going to see a better – I think we're going to see a better pro player than we saw as a college player. Matt, you and I have the same notes written down, but my end point is I'm going to have them wank, ranked way lower just because sure. of the injury history. And like you said, before the ACL injury, it was an explosive outside receiver, could track the ball well, and I, he was on track to be like an early second-round pick. Now, the last year's tape was just unfortunate. He did not seem like, like you said, he was not very confident. I didn't see the same explosiveness. His adjusted his adjusted spark was not nearly good enough for me to roll the dice in the second round. And the other note, that this was in Dane Brugler's draft guide, and I, I don't know how important this is, but it did catch my eye. His brother, who was also a Division One prospect, he tore his ACL three times and like had to medically retire early so i don't know what's going on because he has a knee uh, he had a, that knee sprain a groin injury so this is a lot of injuries to pile on to a more or less an undersized receiver so if you get the the pre-acl talon walsh you're getting a steal but you can very well get yeah. the talon walsh that just doesn't see the field enough and i don't know what Dane, else dane wrote but i can tell you from context that the added context to that is that talon talon's brother when he had the tear his whole family contends and that he didn't get the type of care that he should have mm. gotten if he were, because he tore it in high school. And apparently the, the type of surgical procedures, the type of rehab, none of that was really on the same level of what he would have gotten if it happened in college. And it created further issues for him and kind of, so they're kind of saying it's not a genetic thing. It's not, you know, even though they're twin brothers, it was really the nature of the injury and the nature of the rehab and the, and the procedure that was done. Great info. Don't know who that Dane guy is, but uh, maybe I'll learn. <laughs> He's all right. Day. He's from Ohio. I, I can dig that. Um, I need to go back and not watch 2019. Excuse me, 2020. I need, I need to go back before then um, because I, I guess I was glued to the 2020 stuff. And because I, I, I kind of have different notes than, than both of you. So that just signals me that I need to go back before him because what I saw – was someone who, yeah, did have straight line speed, but looked like a bit lethargic in his movements, like necessarily didn't handle his releases for someone of of that size or um, of that athleticism that, that what you guys are talking about. Matt, should we also get over now this perception of players who played on one side of the formation and that's it? Because in 2020, I mean, almost every single one of his routes were on the right side of the field. And that's all we really got to see from him. Are, are we beyond that? We probably aren't, but I think I, from what I think he's the player I looked at. And I have to look at my notes where I looked back and saw that he played on the other, other side of the formation as well earlier in his career. Yeah. Um, so there's there's that worth noting. And then I would just 
I think with a guy like him, um, yeah, when the short area explosion that you have to be so violent with your movements to plant that he was probably not confident in that just yet. Um, but I, I'd give him a little bit of time and, and we'll see how that goes. I mean, certainly to me, if he fell to me in the third round or the fourth round, probably be available in the fourth round. I'd take him in the early fourth round. No problem. Now, if I felt like seeing his workouts felt like that he had it back um, and that, and, and felt like that that was getting better, I'd roll the dice to go even higher than that. Yeah. And while he might not be comfortable in those, short area movements now, he still was outstanding uh, in those contested catch situations. I, I think according to PFF's draft guide, 43 contested catches over the last three years, which is the most well, uh, in their database. And I'll add this last rejoinder since we're going to we're gonna do a whole homecoming with adding Zane <laughs> Brugler into the mix. Do we our have buddy, to? That our, guy? Buddy, our buddy Alex Brown. Yeah. Um, Alex Brown, I mentioned him this past summer to him that I, who's the recruiting, I think recruiting director at Rice now and who was at Houston. And when he was at Houston, they tried desperately to get themselves some, some Tylen Wallace. And he was like, that guy is a beast. And it, this was, he, he just had a lot of great things to say about Tylen Wallace. So, so that's that. And that's just kind of more subjectively, but we know that Alex Brown has an eye. Uh, we are an hour in. I should have expected this, and only seven names. And these are the seven names so far. So uh, I'll even go quicker than I have in the past so far with the next few names that we have. But one through seven: Jamar Chase, Devonte Smith, Jalen Waddle, Elijah Moore, Terrace Marshall, Rashad Bateman, then Tylen Wallace. I am next, and let's have the Rondale Moore conversation. Uh, Rondale Moore, his style of play suits an athletic phenom and it's lucky and we're lucky that he is an athletic phenom uh, jet sweeps quick slants everyone has seen that and how dominant he is after the catch like he loves this like to, to change his momentum to change his pace matt and he allows then everyone else to run right by him or forces them to slow down and boom then he accelerates and he's immediately by you um multiple issues though Obviously, his size. The second one is he has less than 200 snaps in each of the last two seasons. Did have 750 in 2018. Um, but 47 out of 117 of his catches that season were screens. Um, but while we can say, oh, gadget player, oh, he's thick Tavon, which I might have said in the slack to Hayden Winks yesterday. Uh, I do think that there's more there. I think there's more there, Hayden, where you actually see him when he is allowed to, when he gets the opportunity to, to show more than just that gadget player. I see it. And hopefully he goes to a place because we know all 32 teams are very different. Hopefully he goes to a place that allows him that opportunity to be more than just this manufactured touch player as well. I listened to one of his interviews and he is he's just on top of it. And he was the early declare if there if there is somebody that is gonna be the outlier who was only schemed touches in college, I would be betting on Rondale more, like you alluded to, 97th percentile adjusted spark. That's among drafted receivers, like a rare athlete among rare athletes. I, I would be banking on him just being the slot slot gadget player type. And if he can do more than that, awesome. Uh he was just so productive as a freshman, 1,400 yards, 14 touchdowns against the fifth toughest strength of schedule in the league. I think he's a player worth betting on. I, I don't want to be 
projecting him as being a three-layered receiver, winning downfield, winning intermediate. I would probably bank on him just winning between uh, nine yards of the line of scrimmage. I'm fine with that. Sign me up for that. I'll take his yards after the catchability. He's going to be, like you said, thick Tavon, a Golden Tate plus type of player. Um, I'm in. I'm in for that. I just love thick Tavon because we could <laughs> add that to Rob Slokowski for Pat Fryermuth, <laughs> you know, and we can have like the all nickname team with these fellas. And I'd take both of those guys. Um, and I'm with you, Hayden. I think that that's exactly. That's how I look at him. It's like, I'm not even worried about downfield. Like the whole Steve Smith comparison, I just want to toss that out the window. Yeah. And even the people I'm friends with who say it, I want to toss them out just for the quickest moment. <laughs> totally I'll, different I'll, players. Totally yeah. different players. Yeah, totally. Yeah, because now they make the argument, well, just because you haven't seen him make these contested plays like Steve Smith doesn't mean that he can't. And I'm like, that's absolutely true, but you got to prove it to me before I'm going to start pulling that you know trotting that out there to say that that's an a, a part of his game an avenue that we can exploit i i haven't seen it and then there's you know but his he's so blindingly sudden with his moves and he knows how to use his feet he has a, a terrific release moves and to do that in in two-way go situations in the slot it's just unfair and because he has that low center of gravity and those Barry Sanders-like hips to kind of swivel and change direction and and take hits and 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 manage, you know, stay on his in his stride is just fantastic. Um, and he can bully some people because of that low center of gravity. So that's great. Um, now there's some things I do worry about with him. The mo- the most minor one is, and it's just the most humorous one. It's kind of like you talk about the the high-end high offensive coordinators who win Super Bowls or to get their team to the Super Bowl, and then they go to a team and they're known for offense and their team never has a good offense. Well, you know, to me, Rondale Moore is like the short receiver who can't catch low passes with good technique or even make catches at all of low passes. I mean, he can, but he has more trouble with these passes. I'm like, for a short dude, it's just kind of funny. Um, but then the thing that worries me the most is, is that injury issue, issues? Is he the type of player that when he's dinged up, that he can play at a high enough level to produce? And I have some questions about that. I don't know if the answer is no, he can't, but I, I've, there's enough there that I saw him and he didn't look quick. He didn't look fast in certain in certain moments and in certain games where I thought, wow, this isn't like Sterling Sharp back in the day who, you know, could be playing with a, a bad toe and you can barely walk during the year and then lead the league in receiving. And there's certainly guys who can play it at, you know, when they play at 70%, 70% better than other players, 90%. But Rondale Moore strikes me as a guy that if he's not 100%, he might not even be 50%. And that's that scares me about him. But again, yeah, if you can roll the dice, if I could get him in the third round, it'd be a steal. But I know you're going to have to go in the second probably. And there might be some teams that are like just completely cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs for first round, you know? Yeah, like if he makes it through round two, he's absolutely one of those players that like someone would trade just ahead of the teams at the top of round three to, to go up and get. And you mentioned something, Matt, where like his body control, and I keep using this phrase, but like he plays within himself. There's so many of these sudden players who it's like their, their mind and their body are disjointed and they're, they're not working. Yeah. Well, we'll get to him in a moment. They're, (laughs) they're not in sync. And so like the shoulders get over the toes and like, there's, all over the 
he, he's connected. Rondell Moore is just connected and he's smooth and, and, and he plays within himself. And uh, it's uh, he's another one who, who breaks the mold, who, who breaks the profile. And I, I think that this type is also entering the NFL at the right time. Uh, and I'm going to say it's three C's on thick Tavon. And that's how we're going to proceed with uh, this conversation for the next three weeks as well. <laughs> All right. Hayden winks. Number nine. Who's the number nine wide receiver on our board. Diami Brown, and he won one way, maybe two ways, all vertical routes, but that's what he was asked to do. So I don't want to just say he's only an out uh, vertical outside receiver. He could develop to be more than that. He is 21 years old. He was an early declare. He has two years of a thousand yards against pretty good competition. But what what just so striking about Diami Brown to me was he he was only running in one direction, but he was so good at setting up these defenders, they were just playing off of coverage and he knew exactly when to turn around, stop on curl routes, come back all the way to the ball and then get back up field. He would, I mean, he was just really good at his releases. He would stack the corners on these vertical routes. Um, he wasn't the greatest ball tracker in my opinion, but I just think anything before the ball was in the air, he was really, really good at. And I, I want to be rolling the dice on a player that I was just seeing winning vertically and coming back to the ball Maybe he can do more on these crossing routes. He just was never asked to do that. And the, the other thing we never saw him do, zero receptions on screens last year. I, I hope that wasn't because there's there's something I'm missing about his evaluation. But if he be, if he can become uh, a screen guy, more a winner on slants on top of these vertical elements, I'm pretty intrigued. And I think that you can probably get him late in date, maybe like third round, uh, early third round, and I would be more than happy with him right there. There's a lot I like about Brown. I mean, certainly, I think what you mentioned, Hayden, is, is certainly he. To me, it's weird to call a vertical threat workmanlike, but there's a lot of workmanlike habits to his game. He's going to make that tough catch over the middle on the dig route. He's going to be able to work. He makes some very tough adjustments on on um, vertical targets. And after the catch, like Terrence Marshall, he understands how to catch in peers. He's probably the most efficient receiver after catch that I've seen maybe to the point where I'm like, come on, man, give me a little wiggle. I mean, I want to see a little bit more out of you in this regard. The things that concern me about Brown where I might have him a little bit lower than the crowd um, is that one is that I find that when he drops a ball, then he drops the next one and then he might drop the next one. And he kind of goes through little funks when that happens. And so I, you know, I'm worried about that. And then he has a tell to his um to his release game that needs to be fixed and it's this little wasted movement it's a slight hitch with his back foot with certain routes and it's the routes are often short routes with stem spanning less than 10 yards from the line of scrimmage with a defensive back playing off on him and in the nfl the defender is going to climb that they're going to sit on that route and they're going to go let's wait for that back foot if that back foot goes I know he's breaking on the hitch. I know he's trying to hitch or curl, or it's going to be a stop route, and I'm going to jump that pass. Um, and I think that, but I think that that's one of those things that if a defender is able to tell that and it doesn't get worked out of him early, well, he'll be on the bench until he figures it out, and it probably won't take him that long. I probably have him closer to where you have him, Matt, versus consensus has him. Um, I do think it's worth mentioning that his offensive co- coordinator, I think, was the same offensive coordinator at Ole Miss when they had DK Metcalf and they had A.J. Brown. And 
it kind of brings up that same conversation of, hey, he's glued to one side, the left side of the formation, and everything was off uh, that vertical line. But at the same time, I, I, there are moments where I see him kind of transcend that system, just like on that individual um, route, that individual play, that individual matchup, where I'm like, hmm, something is there. But it's not as much as it was there with some of the other names uh, that I mentioned. So I, I, I think he's solid. Um, I, I would probably be more interested in like the round three, round four territory, but I'll be fascinated to see what the NFL thinks of him. Cause it wouldn't shock me at all if there would be a team that views him as a second round player and, and wants to take him there as well. Um, all right, Hayden, number 10. I mean, eventually Kadarius Tony has got to be on that list. He's a, he's on like number four on a lot of, a lot of people's boards. And it seems like the consensus is he's going to be a round one player. Really? Uh, that's what you see in a lot of the mock drafts. This is kind of surprising to me. I'm obviously a very late breakout. I mean, he played like quarterback in, in, in high school. So like there is some reasons to believe it, but so many of his touches were schemed up last year. Uh, 27% of them on screens. Um, I, I'm not sure if I saw him win enough one-on-one, just like how he would win in the NFL. And I don't want to be drafting a player that is, a little bit older, didn't produce early. His athletic profile is good. I mean, you see like some of these flexibility and his like agility scores are awesome. His burst is awesome, but he's very tiny. And he only won on these scheme touches last year. I would be concerned with that profile in round one. Um, but I mean, for fantasy purposes, you can only have him ranked so low because I think that the draft capital is going to be there. Hmm. He basically didn't play wide receiver in college. Did he Matt? Like, he, he 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 didn't play outside the numbers. Um, everything is middle of the field behind the line of scrimmage or, you know, five to 15 yards. Obviously, he's a complete jitterbug. He makes some of these crazy highlight reel plays where he's making like seven defenders miss. And he's working to the left side of the formation all the way to the right side of the formation. Uh, Matt, I'm going to be honest here. One name that I remember doing this and – was Carlos Henderson. You know, I fell in love with Carlos Henderson. I remember, yes. Because of this dynamic to his game. Because after the catch, it's kind of like those SEC safeties that we see driving into the box and just destroying people. Uh, It's also, you know, the shorter, smaller receivers who are great in the passing game uh, out of the backfield. Like we all latch on to these after-the-catch dynamos. Um, But is there anything else to... Kadarius Tony's game, and if not, is that enough? And he does he even do it in a style that succeeds in the NFL? Well, listen, you know, I didn't like Carlos Henderson, but I, I can one up you with Hakeem Butler. So I'm a, I'm still kind of a wondering what's going to happen there on that particular end. But well, you know, when you talk about Tony, I actually do believe that Tony can play in the NFL um, and be a good player. And I see a lot of Golden Tate to his game. And that was another outlier because in in a sense that Golden Tate, there's three receivers I've studied in 16 years who can actually win contested targets using poor hands technique where they're using underhand when they should use overhand and their body catching balls. Okay. One of them, the worst one of them is um, Ted Ginn. He's the worst one. 
And, you know, and daily fantasy people still would love him on certain days. I've certainly made enough money off of him in those. Ted in those Ginn is actually good at football and people hate on yeah, him. Ted, look exactly. how long Ted Ginn made it in the league. Exactly. So, and it's one thing. It's like, well, it's more than one thing, but there's one main thing with it that he just does so well that even if he drops two and catches two, you're, you're still probably winning that game because of the fact of what uh, much field stretcher. The other was early Doucette. And then the third oh, yeah. guy and the best guy was Golden Tate because Golden Tate still doesn't make plays with his hands the way that he should on a consistent basis. But he's the best of those three and has had 90, 100 catch seasons with the Detroit Lions, you know, as a guy who was very well built, could run after the catch. Tony reminds me of that. Now, release wise, I've seen a swat and swim combo that he does very well against off coverage when they get shallow to his stem. His hesitation is very sudden. Um, he pairs that well with the swim. I love his one-step stretch that he pairs with the swim. You can see the kind of the consistency of what he likes to rely on with the upper body movement, but you win with the lower body first. And so I'm talking about three different moves with the swim along with a hard stick and a head fake to set up a quick slant. Um, and then he also has um, double-ups that are good, um, three quicks, crit, um, stutters, hip shifts, duck walks. I think he has the most footwork um, the the best lower body footwork, uh, you know, in terms of off the line of any of the prospects that we've wow. seen. You know, now here's the dual edged sword with him is that he's the guy who plays outside his frame too often at the top of his stem, and then after the catch, where he's either going to get hurt because he's going to land awkwardly at one point or get hit awkwardly, or he just keeps slipping and doesn't make plays because he can't maintain his balance. But he tracks the ball beautifully. Um, I've seen him make excellent plays as a ball tracker um, downfield over directly over his head, both on punt duty and on um, vertical routes. So while I have him ranked sixth, I think fifth or sixth on my board. Wow. Um, yeah, I, he grew on me. And so, you know, as, as a guy who can say, I didn't love Carlos Henderson, but I do like that. I, I you know, I kind of split the difference with you on this particular one. I think that he's especially in this day and age now, because if Brent, I mean, I'm maybe I'm being a hater on Brandon Ayuk because I just didn't think Brandon Ayuk had a multidimensional game, but if Brandon Ayuk can, you know, find a fit and he did easily in San Francisco and be productive the way he is with the game that I think is limited um, and was no way in shape and form anything remotely like Emmanuel Sanders, except that he ran some slant routes pretty well. I, I think Kadarius Tony can be um, a player at least as good as Brandon Ayuk, if not better. Hey, any closing thoughts here on Tony? Apparently he has to go to Kyle Shanahan's offense to be good. That's my <laughs> concern with him right now. Is It's, it's going to be very hit or miss with him. That's what I think. I think he's like probably the most boom bust player. Um, it, that's like a consensus, like top 50 pick. Um, I can see it working very well. I can see it working very poorly. And I think that the team fit is going to make a huge difference here. The last note on, on Tony, he has a like 10 YouTube videos of uh, him, like uh, rapping and stuff that everyone should be checking out. too. <laughs> he loves the dead leg move too. It's like stick out his leg and then force the defense to, overcompensate in that direction, then boom, he goes in the opposite direction. He's a fun watch. He's absolutely a fun watch. Um, all right, second to last pick, number 11, on our wide receiver build a board. Uh, it's going to be random for both of you because I don't think either of you have heard me talk about him. Let's go with Josh Palmer from Tennessee. Um, this is a big, 
long strider who, Matt, I'm going to throw out a name and I'm going to look at you and see your reaction. He gives me shades of Michael Gallup, maybe like B-level shades of Michael Gallup. Um, because I feel like hmm. 89% of his catches, he leaves his feet. Like he, he And sometimes necessary, sometimes unnecessary. But he can be so good in that area. When we, when we look at like big wide receivers who can win on the outside in this draft class, I didn't see the movement combined with the size, combined with winning traits that often in this group. Because again, we talked about how many of them have played in the slot and the reasons for that. But Josh Palmer is one coming out of Tennessee that I saw if he continues to progress can be that and win on the outside at NFL level. He's certainly not perfect. He struggles and at times looks looks lethargic against press coverage and against jams to release. But there are some elements to his game that I really, really liked, especially compared to his peers in this class. I like I like Josh Palmer. I haven't ranked above Cornell Powell, who I think a lot of people think is better. Um, and the, the guy I had in mind was kind of more of a Hakeem Nixon training. I think he's a player that you can isolate him like Nick's, not extremely fast. I didn't think he was extremely fast, but someone that can get free, and especially with the A to play action, you can use him inside to stretch seams and win in zones. I think he's a very good zone route runner. Um, and and so when I like, I also like just the sturdiness of his game. Um, you know, he's someone that if you used him as you could probably use him as a split end at times when you isolate him, um, especially in, you know, 11 personnel or 10 personnel and you put him on the Island. Um, but I think he's more of like a twin side slot man or flanker. Um, and he's the guy that can really is going to do the best damage for you. 15 to 35 yards from the line of scrimmage. Anything deeper than that, I think is, you're just wasting your time or you're just, you know, you're throwing up prayers probably more than anything else. Um, but he's someone that if he's, he could be also the guy who's looking over his shoulder a little bit every year. If he's not to be he, replaced. Yeah. He's kind of like the Zach Stacy of like, Oh, of don't do that to me. Don't oh, just bring I, up history here. I didn't mean that. Well, I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, let me bring up another Look, one. Not, I like Matt, Blaine that, Gabbard at one time. So there we go. Matt, Matt that means we're going to be uh, cheering for a secondary professional league at some point too, for Josh Palmer to play. And if, if <laughs> you know, Zach Stacy's name, uh, Hayden, have you gotten to watch him yet? Haven't watched him, so I'll just go through his, his analytical profile. Um, 53rd percentile adjusted production. Uh, 50th percentile adjusted spark, and he comes in my model like a 26th uh, percentile prospect overall. So I'll, I'll have to watch him. Both of you guys seem to like him to some extent. Um, I have no idea where he's supposed to get drafted. Is he like a day six or a round day six, six guy? Yes. Day six, yeah. <laughs> uh, round six, I mean, where, where are you supposed to go? I don't even know. Probably like fifth to seventh, I think, yeah, if, yeah, if like he that. gets drafted. Yeah. Okay. I like that. Um, all right, Matt. Well, we are here at pick number 12. Who is going to cap our wide receiver build a board here? Well, I mean, I, I I'll say I'll I'll say that guys that would be in the discussion in the scout room that we have here might include guys like Frank Darby or Amari Rogers. We could talk about Jalen Darden, possibly, um, or a Cornell Powell or Nico Collins and or Amon Ross St. Brown is certainly worthwhile of that. But we're going to roll the dice. Do it. You know, we're going to go with Jalen Camp out of Georgia Tech. Okay. Yeah. No, I love this, Matt. I love this one. Because <laughs> Jalen Camp, 
first of all, his dad, his dad lives in the County I do, and he trains pro players. Um, and the second thing, and that's just the least important thing that doesn't matter at all, but it's just fun to add as a tangent. But Jalen camp was a kid who played a triple option offense at Georgia tech where they, he got the ball maybe two, three times a game, but he's what, like six, two, two twenty six, or has like a four, 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 low four, four, 40, um, has an insane three, has like a pretty good three cone drill, jumped 40 inches, lifted the, lifted the, the barbell 30 times as a wide receiver. <laughs> okay. And none of, and while all of that's very cool in terms from the athletic profile, um, he has some things to learn. Like his, he looks like, he looks like Tim Tebow, like doing the kneel when he's like trying to like run breaks right now at certain points, um, as opposed to actually fluidly dropping his hips. But this dude can track the ball and make wide catch radius, um, receptions that are on par with receivers that like, I used to joke that I'd like to have like a contest. Like if the NFL was going to do a a version of the dunk contest, you know, that the NBA does, it would be the contested catch aerial acrobatic contest. And we would have to like, but then we'd have to find a way to regenerate Brandon Lloyd, Larry Fitzgerald, um, you know, because they would have to be in this competition because they would make Odell Beckham look like he was like a, a rank amateur. Um, and I love Odell Beckham, but I'm sorry. He, he doesn't compare to either of those guys in their prime. Um, but this guy, I've seen some catches that I was like, I would add that to the tape that would have Brandon Lloyd catches and Larry Fitzgerald catches catches where he's literally, you know, tracking the ball over one shoulder and then directly over his head and then to the opposite shoulder while diving for the pass up the seam, you know, um, posting up on defenders where he's able to just make it with one hand at the boundary. And, and it wasn't like Odell Beckham, like leading back like that, but it was, it was just as difficult just in a, I can't describe it, but it was in a different way. Um, this guy just didn't get, just didn't get targets until no, last year. There's something there. There's something there with him. And I was up to about 1am speeding through wide receiver prospects, just trying to get through lists that people put up. And he was one of the last ones that I saw. No thought in my mind, Matt Waldman, that you would bring him up in this conversation, but I'm so glad that you did uh, to all the listeners out there. Unfortunately, it's not like you can go on YouTube and search Jalen camp highlights like because you can go on Twitter, you might find some of the ones that, true. that, that this, this fellow put up there for you. If you want. <laughs> That's probably, I should have done that. That's, I, I did not do that, and I will absolutely do that tonight. But yeah, I mean, he has a lot of work to do to, to figure out like the, the detail, the nuance parts, but he also does things that you just can't teach. Exactly. And as, as simple as the statement is, he truly might be the next wide receiver out of Georgia Tech that's just a freak athlete. And we've yeah. seen some of those guys succeed because they just didn't have the opportunities for it. We've seen some fail too. We've seen some succeed. And uh, he might be the next. He might not even get drafted, but he's definitely one to to keep an eye on for sure. Hayden, what's his athletic profile like? Really good. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know anything about him at all, but when you were going through those numbers, I think he, I'll have to go find the exact adjusted spark, but like a 40th or 40 inch vertical, and he's a big, big player. He's going to have like incredible. Uh, adjusted spark score so yeah I i'll have to read, watch him too i can read you the uh, his pro day um right here it just took me a minute he's 16th on my board by the way at the good on for wide you, receivers. Matt. i love yeah that. so i that i just it wound up that way four four three forty at six two two twenty six 
41620 um, shuttle, 702 three cone drill, 40 inch vertical, 30 times on the bench press. I don't have the bet, I don't have the broad jump on me right there or the 10 splits or anything like that, but that's enough to tell you this guy's. I mean, he's almost built like Eric Dickerson, but he's playing wide receiver. Yeah, you know, which like kind of goes back to the beginning of our conversation about where the athletes are going, maybe. Yeah, and it's not like he just bulked up for his pro day either. Like you can see, no. the shoulder pads just look differently on him when when he's playing out there. I'm so glad that you threw in one of your favorites here. We're actually going to be doing a show this Friday with uh, with Ben Fennel. Uh, on some of our favorite yeah. players in this class uh, at multiple positions. And he might have been one I mentioned. So I'm so glad we got to talk to him here. Sweet, um, Matt Waldman, thank you so much. I truly appreciate this out there. Again, uh, everyone go and check out the Rookie Scouting Portfolio. Matt, you also have an incredible podcast where uh, you do stay up until about 6 a.m. some mornings after uh, night-long work sessions. And then <laughs> you just unload on everything that you learned through that entire night. But they are, it's incredible. Can you, can you promote that as well? Sure. You know, the RSP cast is available pretty much at every outlet and I, I do different things with it. So every, during the season, every other week, it's Russ Landy and I, Russ Landy is the um, head of us scouting for the Montreal Alouettes, former Browns and Rabs scout. Um, he and I talk about different things with scouting Mark Schofield. You guys know him and love him. Yep. We do, we do quick hitting shows where we cover a lot of the NFL and then also look at, you know, talk about draft prospects. And in between that, I'll do some, you know, some longer monologue podcasts like the brain dumps, you know, that we go through there so and, and go from that standpoint. We just recently had Rick Saratella on from Draft Bible, as well as Jay Moyer talking, he and I talking running backs, which you probably don't want to miss if you still like running backs at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, thanks so much. And again, everyone out there, uh, if you enjoyed this one, go buy the Rookie Scouting Portfolio. And two, if you want to take a chance, rate and review the show, send me a screenshot. And I'll give one away. Matt, you're the you're the best. You know I love you. Uh, I miss seeing you. It feels yeah. like it's been five years since I saw you, but it's about two years now. So yeah, well, soon. I, I miss you guys. I miss you as well, Josh. It's so much fun to be able to talk with you. And Hayden's been nice to meet you. We I follow you. I enjoy the work that you do. And I've just you know how it is. I think we both. Josh was like, I don't know how you guys didn't even know each <laughs> other at this point. But uh, I just but think all my fun. friends talk to each other too. That, yeah. that's that's my issue well we all look at your we all look at your fantastic food pictures on your instagram <laughs> so you know i love them man i'm like i didn't know josh was such a foodie i said this yeah. is gonna be good this is gonna yeah. be good maybe we'll uh expand the show to reach that at some point matt um, anyways anyways matt thank you so much uh thank hayden you, as always good talking with you everyone out there again we'll be back on friday with ben fennel can't wait to have that conversation we always appreciate the support up the villa talk to you all soon See ya.